Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, welcome to Center Street Church. Uh, To those of you here at Central Campus, also those of you who are joining us online, and those of you who are meeting together at one of our other regional campuses in Airdrie, uh, down in Bridgeland, and also in South Calgary, and uh, over at the northwest part of our city in the Crowfoot Theaters. In Matthew chapter 18, we read of a time the disciples came to Jesus And they asked him, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of God? It's a question we've all asked, or at least have thought about from time to time, because deep down inside of us, we want our life to count. We want to make a difference in some way. And it's an important question, because what you believe a great life or a significant life is, will determine to a large extent the values that you pursue and the way that you will live your life. Well, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus answers that question by giving a description of what greatness looks like, not only in the kingdom of this world or in our secular culture, but what it looks like in the kingdom of God. And so I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles uh, to Mark chapter 10. Now, as we learn together in the first part of this little mini-series, Jesus teaches, first of all, that true greatness comes to those who serve God and others no matter what. Look at verse 42. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Jesus says, in the kingdom of this world, greatness is based on what you think your status is in relation to other people. You know, it's been a rather nightmarish week for Calgarians this past week, with the Flames being eliminated from the playoffs, the Oilers making it to the second round. I feel your pain. After more than a decade of dwelling in the cellar, the Oilers are poised to make Edmontonians feel great again. (laughs) The city of champions. But (laughs) (laughs) it's tough, tough. I I actually, last night, um, I, I, I watched part of the Oilers game um, against San Jose with a bunch of Oilers fans. Um, I did that only because I really love these people. The entertainment wasn't great, but uh, (laughs) anyways, that's still kind of swirling around in my mind here. But, you know, all joking aside, if you think about it, the rivalry between Calgary and Edmonton beautifully illustrates how our culture views greatness. You see, in a culture that rejects God, greatness is based not on what God thinks of you, how God defines you, but on what others think of you. In other words, greatness is based almost entirely on where you think you stand or where you rank in relation to other people. 
And the pathway to greatness, therefore, in our culture is actually found by competing with others and keeping score. And we play this game at all levels of our lives. From my child being smarter and better behaved than your child. My position having greater status than your position. My net worth being greater than your net worth. My spouse being more attractive than your spouse. Right up to our hockey team being greater than your hockey team. Even though the players on our hockey team are from all over the world, you know, none from Calgary as far as I know. (laughs) And they're here only, come on, face it, folks, they're here only because we're paying them insane amounts of money. When they win, we actually feel better. I mean, psychologists tell us that the whole city, the the mood goes up. We actually feel better because as ridiculous as it sounds, we, we vicariously feel like winners thinking that we're somehow greater than the people of Edmonton. (laughs) Now, unfortunately, this results in a generation of proud people, you see. And you see, the more people are preoccupied with themselves and obsessed with being one up on the next person, the more our marriages and our families and our society as a whole will disintegrate because pride fosters division and conflict. Jesus says, this is not the way of my kingdom. In verse 43, look what he says. Not so with you. He says, I've just described the thinking, the worldview of our culture. Not so with you, if you're part of my kingdom, he says. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says in God's kingdom, our understanding of greatness is polar opposite to that of the world. He says greatness comes to those who serve others rather than compare themselves with others. Greatness comes to those who serve people rather than use people for their own Self-centered ends. And then secondly, Jesus teaches here that true greatness comes to those who trust God's goodness no matter what. Look at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Of course, they were thinking earthly kingdom. You know, he was going to be the king and they just wanted to be kind of their right, his right and left hand 
person. Notice what he says. You don't know what you're asking. Jesus said, can you drink the cup I drink? Now, the cup Jesus was referring to here was his coming death on the cross for the sins of the world. And he was saying to them, true greatness does not come through being promoted to a position of power. It is not something that's handed to you on a silver platter. No, true greatness comes to those who put the interests of others ahead of themselves. And Jesus wants us to know that doing that may not only prove costly, but will not come easily or quickly. In fact, it may involve a number of unexpected detours along the way. In Matthew 26, verse 39, we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he's arrested. And he is in great agony as he prays because he knows that very soon he will be nailed to the cross. And that every ugly, despicable, cruel, horrifying sin humanity has ever committed, past, present, and future, will be placed on him. Can you imagine the horror of that? Think of the worst crime you can possibly think of being committed. Add it by a billion, gazillion times, and all of that is placed on Christ. People see one crime these days, and sometimes they need therapy for months, if not longer. And all of this was placed on Jesus. It wasn't the cross and the pain of the cross that concerned Jesus as much as the reality of having to bear the sins of the world. Taking our place. And so Jesus prays, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup, see there's the cup he's talking about, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now I want to remind you that when Jesus was on our planet, he was fully God and fully man. While on earth, he chose not to exercise his divine power, but rather to live in total dependence on his heavenly Father. Even as he now calls upon us, his, his children, his followers, to live in total dependence upon him. The power that Jesus displayed to heal people, to deliver people from demonic oppression, for example, was God the Father, God the Spirit's power working through him. Now, as he contemplated bearing the sins of the entire world, the human part of him wanted to avoid the cross and go straight to the resurrection. But he surrendered totally to his heavenly father and he said, yet not as I will, but as you will. He essentially said, father, I prefer to take the straight path 
to Resurrection Sunday. But if there is no other way, then your will be done. I'll take the gruesome and the horrifying detour of Good Friday and the cross. You know, one of the things that I appreciate about GPS on my phone is that when I ask Siri, my virtual assistant, to give me directions to a certain place, she calculates the shortest distance between where I am and where I want to go. And I really like that because I like to be efficient with my time. Now, the problem is, is that sometimes I assume that God works the same way that Siri does. If God calls me to something, I assume that he will arrange the shortest or the quickest or the easiest way for me to get there. And you see, even though the most direct way, even though what I think is the easiest way may make the most sense to me. From God's perspective, my way is not always the best way for reasons sometimes only God understands. In Exodus chapter 5, Moses and Aaron, they meet Pharaoh. And as God's representatives... They call on him to release the Hebrew people, not only from slavery, but from the country of Egypt. Moses essentially says to Pharaoh, dude, we can do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way. I certainly encourage you to choose option easy and release my people. Unfortunately, Pharaoh is a proud and he's a stubborn man. He chooses the hard way, the way of the plagues, the plague of frogs, frogs everywhere, the plague of gnats, gnats everywhere, the plague of flies, the plague of boils, the plague of hail, just to name a few, which leaves Egypt in total ruins, total mess, and in the end, Pharaoh gives up and lets the Hebrew people go. We then read in Exodus 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. Now, if you look at the map on the screen, the most direct way to the promised land would have been to head east-northeast along the Via Maris, or the Way of the Sea, which was a very well-used coastal highway at the time. Sort of just, you know, the line where you see below the Mediterranean Sea, just kind of along there and up to the promised land, which is now Israel. Now, had they used that particular route, which, of course, made the most sense, it would have taken less than two weeks for them to get there. 
But you see, here's the thing. Even though it was the shortest way, it was not the best way because it was not God's way. God knew their faith in him wasn't strong. And so instead of taking them directly to the promised land, he leads them south into the wilderness for over a year to help them to get to know him and to get them to trust him more fully. Now perhaps you've noticed that God's way is not always the perf our preferred way. In Isaiah 55, verse 8, the Lord puts it this way, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. Don Sanukshan says, what that means is, the distance between where you are and where God is calling you to is not always a straight line. In fact, it rarely is a straight line like this. We would wish for it to be that way every time. Rather, he says, it more often is a series of zigs and zags filled with unexpected turns that look more like that. A number of years ago, a young pastor and his wife asked to meet with me. He told me how years earlier they distinctly sensed God calling them to full-time ministry. Many people affirm not only their calling and gifts, but they encourage them to step out and follow the Lord in this. Saying things like, God has gifted you to do this. He will use you greatly to advance his kingdom. After an extended time of prayer, they finally said yes to God. However, after accepting a call to serve at a particular church, they felt like everything was an uphill battle. They faced continual hardship and disappointment. Instead of seeing God use them powerfully to impact many lives for Christ, they faced constant put-downs, resistance, discouragement. After pouring their heart and their soul into the ministry for over a decade, they found themselves worn out, empty, broken, and disillusioned. They asked me, Henry, did, did, did we miss something initially? Did we misunderstand God's call somehow? Because we didn't sign up for this. Have you ever sensed God calling you to go in a certain direction? Only to find along the way where he was taking you was not where you hoped to be going. We see this in the life of Joseph, perhaps more than any of the Old Testament characters. In Genesis 37, Joseph is only 17 years of age when, through a dream, God informs him that he has a very special plan for his life. That one day he would be in a position of immense power where, where people would actually bow down to him given his authority, including some members of his family. Now, if you jump about four chapters ahead to Genesis 41, we read what God said would happen, in fact, 
did happen. In verse 40, Pharaoh says this to Joseph. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. However, in the in-between time, Joseph's journey to greatness was anything but a straight line. It was a nightmare roller coaster ride, actually, that lasted for over 13 years. Now, Joseph's older brothers, for, for reasons we won't go into, they didn't like him much to begin with. But when he, with naive innocence, you know, joyfully jumped, you know, walked into the family living room and shared this dream he had with his family. His brothers lost it. Determined initially they were going to kill him, but then decided just to sell him to slave traders. And Joseph was put on a slave block in Egypt. He was purchased by Pharaoh's head bodyguard, a guy by the name of Potiphar. And Genesis 39.6 says that Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. Poor guy, he just didn't get any breaks at all. <laughs> and I say that because it wasn't long before Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. And when he refuses, she accuses him of trying to take advantage of her. And Joseph ends up being thrown up in prison for a crime that he didn't commit. Now, during those 13 years... And you know, we say that so quickly. I mean, think about this. 13 years. I'm sure more than once Joseph must have thought, Lord, remember the plan? This special plan you said you had for my life? People were going to be bowing down to me. I just need to know. I, why is it that I'm bowing down to people? Did I miss something somewhere? You didn't say anything about the fact that I'd spend my 20s wasting away in a filthy prison. This is not exactly how I envisioned this to go down. And as the years went by, I'm sure that there were moments when Joseph was losing hope and ever so tempted to give up. Some of you know what that is like. Some of you experience the end of yet another relationship and you are losing hope of ever finding a compatible life partner. There are times you just can't go there emotionally. There are times you can't take the thought of being disappointed one more time. Some of you are experiencing that with your kids. A son or daughter or both are not in a good place spiritually. Perhaps they're even on a destructive path. And you keep hoping. And you keep praying. But you're losing hope. Some of you battle with an illness. You get good news and then you get bad news. You pray until you don't even know what to pray anymore. After a while you just feel like you just can't hope anymore. You know, that's, 
how Joseph must have felt. At every turn, it just seemed like his situation was going from bad to worse. And yet Joseph remained steadfast. Even though Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, Joseph remained true to the Lord. John Ortberg says, when life does not turn out the way that you planned, when your dreams aren't fulfilled, when you're frustrated, when you're disappointed, be really careful. Be really, really careful. Because sin will start to look really good to you. In other words, taking an exit, pushing God away, will look really appealing. You see, given his circumstances, Joseph could have thought, why not live a little? I mean, I've been beaten up, sold to slave traders, auctioned like an animal on a slave block, and it looks like I'm going to be stuck in this dump the rest of my life. I obviously didn't hear God, right? And the way that things are going, you know, I'm going to grow old, I'm going to die and never see any of my dreams become a reality. I'm never going to be married, never going to have a family, a meaningful career. So why shouldn't I? have a little happiness and a little pleasure in life. When life doesn't turn out the way they hoped it would, some people use similar justification to distance themselves not only from God but also others and to satisfy their fantasies and indulge in the lust of the flesh. They take an exit, a detour of their own making. But Joseph said no. Even though his circumstances were awful, nothing made any sense, he stood firm, determined to trust in the goodness of God no matter what. Whether he died in the pit or died on the pinnacle of power, he surrendered his life and his future to God, firmly believing that God had his best interests at heart and that God was working out his good purpose in his life, whether he saw it or not. Genesis 39.2 says, The Lord was with Joseph. During one of the lowest points in his life, Joseph's reminded that he is not alone. That the Lord, the creator of the universe, is with him. And that gave him the courage and a deep resolve not to quit. And because Joseph didn't quit, he set in motion the deepening of his faith the development of his character that would one day enable him to become the most effective leader in all of Egypt and, of course, to respond to the call of God on his life. So let me ask you, how are you responding 
to the nasty, unexpected turns in your life. Do you ever quit something when you're disappointed or hurt? Do you ever feel like packing up and running when you're feeling inadequate? When you're feeling insecure? When you're feeling insignificant? When life is hard, when trouble or feelings of insecurity and doubt come our way, or when life takes a nasty, unexpected turn, the option of giving up, of quitting, can look very appealing. Perhaps your marriage isn't anything like you thought it would be. It requires a lot of hard work. You didn't sign up for that. You just want to quit. Rather than exercising courage and fighting for your marriage and doing the hard work to experience the rich intimacy that God intended for your marriage, you're, you're going to take the easy way of settling for mediocrity. Or maybe you're disappointed with your job or, or with your ministry. You'd plan to do some great things in your career. You'd hope to have a much greater impact and to have greater influence and greater recognition for your leadership. But here you are now. It's not anything like you envisioned it originally. And you're really thinking of bailing out. Quitting may bring temporary relief, but every time you do, it chisels away a little more at your character and makes quitting a little bit easier the next time. Strong character gets forged when you endure, even though you feel like giving up. That's the kind of resolve that results in a life of greatness. A resolve that builds great friendships, that builds great marriages, that builds great families and great churches. When people just buckle down and they say, even though life has not turned out the way I hoped it would, even though I'm disappointed in this situation, God has called me to this. And his approval means more to me than man's approval. And so I'm not quitting. Friend, whatever you are going through, however tempted you are to give up, hear this, you are not alone. God is with you. The life of Joseph teaches us that even when life doesn't make any sense, God is with us. He's working behind the scenes in response to our prayers for our ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. You know, God isn't opposed to us being happy. He's not opposed to us being healthy or, or even wealthy. But he is opposed to anything that he created replacing him as the object of our highest affection. Because he knows if it's not centered on him, we're on a path that's going to lead to despair and possibly even destruction. He's a good God who wants to meet our needs, but, he, but what he wants even more is for our friendship with him 
to thrive, to prosper. You know, he delights us, inviting him to do our day with us. He loves it when we come to him asking for his help, his wisdom, his direction and power. Now, friends, in the midst of the zigs and zags of life, in the midst of disappointment and discouragement and hardship, we can know that God's promises can be trusted and that he is with us no matter what and that his presence and his protection will never leave us. I'll close with this. Back in 1988, when many of us were a lot younger, 1988, Dave Dravecki was at the top of his life and the top of the game that he loved to play. Not only did he have a wonderful family, but he was reaching his all-star peak as a pitcher for the San Francisco Giants. His 5-1 victory over the Dodgers on opening day was overshadowed later that fall by the discovery of cancer and the removal of half of the deltoid muscle in his pitching arm. Defying all odds, Dave came back to pitch again in the major leagues. People were, were on their feet cheering him on as he warmed up for the game. After being told by doctors that he would never um, you know, never pitch again, or it would take a miracle for him ever to pitch again. Dave pitched a 4-3 win. Unfortunately, Dave's comeback was short-lived. Five days later in Montreal, Dave threw the pitch that could be heard around the world. As he threw the ball, his arm literally split in two. Dave's cancer, you see, had returned again. His weakened arm was not going to improve. And so he decided to retire in November of 1989, just a year after his first season as a major league pitcher. The cancer continued to eat away at his arm until his arm, his left shoulder, and collarbone had to be amputated for fear of the cancer spreading further. Dave writes... My arm my arm was to me what hands are to a concert pianist, what feet are to a marathon runner. It's what made me valuable, what gave me worth in the eyes of the world. And then suddenly, my arm was gone. His boyhood dream was over. All the hard work, all the practicing, the countless hours, it was all for naught. Or was it all for naught? With the absence of his arm, Dave seemed stripped of his identity. It forced him to ask, where does my worth come from? After a long, agonizing search, Dave discovered that his true worth could never be shaken by adversity or loss. 
He realized that nothing he did based on worldly success, which is temporary, could replace the value of his life and his identity in Jesus Christ, which is eternal. And even though the nasty, unexpected detour Dave found himself on made absolutely no sense at the time, now in hindsight, Dave could see that God used this terrible loss to provide a platform for Dave to share the love of Jesus with millions of people around the world through his ministry called Outreach of Hope. And Dave has said, in light of eternity, he wouldn't have it any other way. friends our God is good and we can trust him even when he allows us or leads us to take a life-changing detour he will use whatever we have and give us whatever we need to accomplish his sovereign purpose in and through our lives I urge you not to fear him I urge you even more not to fight him. I challenge you not to take the easy path, the detours, or to settle for mediocrity. Because even though life may be hard, one day we're going to realize that following the Lord was not only the best way to go, it is the only way to go. And as we do, as we choose to serve people rather than, uh, rather than to use people, no matter what, as we choose to trust in God's goodness, no matter what, it will become apparent over time to all who know us well that true greatness has come to us to the honor and to the glory of God. Would you please stand for closing prayer? Let's just open our hands to the Lord again and ask those two questions we become accustomed to asking, Lord, what are you saying to me? And Lord, what do you want me to do about it? What is one step you want me to take? What is it you want me to surrender, Lord? What's one attitude you want me to change? What's a commitment you want me to make?
just going to ask the prayer partners if you'd come forward. In a minute, I'm going to close with prayer, but if there's anyone here that you just have a burden you'd like someone to pray with you about, you have a need, maybe you have a question, maybe an issue you'd like to talk with someone. Whatever it is you feel prompted, perhaps you just want to come and you just want to surrender something to the Lord and just spend some time quietly with Him, you feel free to do that. We're just going to take a moment just for anyone to slip out of your seat and just come on down. Father, I want to thank you for Jesus' teaching here on greatness. And Lord, the reminder that greatness does not come quickly or easily. It often comes at a great cost, which Jesus demonstrated in his life. It is not something we seek after. It is something that comes to us by walking and abiding with you daily. There are times, Lord, we can totally relate with Joseph how he must have felt when he was forgotten in prison. But again, thank you, Lord, for the reminder that he was not forgotten by you. And Lord, neither are we. We affirm today that you are a good, faithful, and loving God. We see your love, we see your goodness displayed so powerfully in the life of your son, Jesus, who came as a man and died on a cross in our place. Lord, some of us are facing circumstances that are just overwhelming us. And so I want to pray right now for those who are feeling just overwhelmed right now, frustrated perhaps, whatever it is that's going on, that you will give them hope and that you will remind them by your spirit that you are a good God who can be trusted no matter what. May that be all of our conviction, I pray. To the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs the Jesus that we know and love. For I pray in Jesus' precious name. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.